What a joy to be with you. I bring greetings from Oxford Presbyterian Church. Uh, Nate has been a friend of mine for some years, and uh, it's wonderful just to be here and to fellowship with my brother, but also to, to fellowship with brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone. Thank you for your interest, your prayers, and your support for what God is doing all around the world. Uh, I would dare to speak on behalf of all the missionaries and mission agencies and ministries that you, you support and pray for. Thank you so much. It is valued greatly. I cannot tell you how much your prayers and your support are, are valued. And it's a huge joy for me to be here to simply fellowship with you and to minister God's word to you. Um, I've had the privilege of, of being able to put a little bit of literature in the tent out the side there. So if you'd like to find out a little bit more about what I'm doing, there's two brochures. You can grab one. Do take them home and read them. Or if you want to sign up for our prayer letter, please do that. But most importantly, I'm here to minister God's word to you. Before I read from Acts chapter 12, let's pray together. O oh Lord our God, you have given us in Holy Scripture not only truth, but life. As we read your word, as we consider it and preach it and sit under the preaching of your word, we pray for nothing less than the Holy Spirit to come in power and to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives so that we may leave this place transformed and being transformed into his image and all for his glory. Amen. This is a fairly lengthy passage, so uh, we'll stay seated, or you will stay seated uh, as, as I read this. This is a thrilling passage of, of Scripture in Acts chapter 12. Let's hear God's word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. 
Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. I wonder if you've heard of the name of John Wesley. John Wesley, a famous man in church history. He was born in 1703 and he died in 1791. He, he founded the Methodist Church. He actually served for several months here across the pond in the United States of America. He was an itinerant preacher. He would roam around the British countryside preaching the gospel to anyone who would hear him. He went on many preaching tours around the country. He wrote a diary, and I wanted to read a few extracts from his diary to you this morning. Here they are. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's Church, was asked not to come back anymore. (laughs) Sunday evening, May 5th, preached in St. John's Church. The deacon said, get out and stay out. Next Sunday, Sunday morning, May 12th, preached in St. Jude's Church. Can't go back there either. (laughs) Sunday evening of the same day, preached in another church. He doesn't name the church. Deacons called a special meeting and said, I couldn't return. It goes on. The next Sunday, preached on the street, kicked off the street. The next Sunday, which was May 26th, preached in a meadow. Chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. You haven't got any bulls about her, I hope not. (laughs) Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. He preached God's word. He was faithful in declaring the wonderful truth of God's grace to a needy and hell-deserving world. And what did he face as a result? He faced opposition. Not once, not twice, not three times, But repeatedly, frequently, as he preached the gospel, he faced opposition. 
hatred, enmity. This is the reality of God's truth, isn't it? God's truth will always elicit a response. We long for the response to be one of joy and acceptance and of belief and of faith. But church history teaches us, indeed the the, the chapters of the New Testament instruct us, that more often than not, the response you're going to get is going to be negative at best. Enmity, opposition. It's very striking where Acts 12 falls in the story of Acts because there's been a momentous event in the life of the church just a few chapters before. Some of you will know it well. What's happened? The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Cornelius has believed and the church gathered and said, is this true? Are the promises to Abraham and all his descendants now readily available to everyone in the whole world? Yes. Amazing watershed moment in the life of the church. And then what does Luke record? Immediately, opposition. That's what we have in Acts chapter 12. We have the opposition of the world, institutional opposition, not just deacons saying get out and stay out, not just people letting loose bulls. This is the powers that be. Herod sitting on the throne ranging his arsenal of strength against the church. And as we read this chapter, what do we see? The church is weak, isn't it? The church is fragile and frail. The church is about to get snuffed out. And yet, at the very point of weakness, God shows his power. At the very point when it looks like the church may end and this momentous watershed moment of the gospel going to all the nations will get crushed. What does God do? His word advances. His word multiplies. Not, not, not in the weakness, not despite the weakness, through the weakness. Through the weakness of the church, God displays his mighty power. Notice three things from this chapter with me this morning. And here's the first one. The illusion of Herod's power. The illusion of Herod's power. At first blush, chapter 12 presents us with a man of considerable prestige. Herod was from a family of brutes. Herod the Great killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. That's this Herod's granddad. His uncle Herod is the one that interrogated Jesus at his trial. And all of them were vicious, brutal men. And what do we see in this chapter? Well, right at the beginning, at that time, verse 1, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when it pleased the Jews, he arrests Peter. He's on a purge of the church. And nothing seems to be able to stop him. He can take one of, one of Jesus' inner circle, James, one of his three inner circle, and kill him. And undoubtedly, his intention is to do the same to Peter. People's lives seem to be in the palm of his hand. Did you notice at the end of the chapter, this region called Tyre and Sidon, they have to, they have to woo him because they are dependent on him for their food. He, he, he controls the supply of grain. 
And all he has to do is go, stop it, and they'll starve. Tens of thousands of people. What we have here is a modern-day Vladimir Putin. A modern-day Vladimir Putin. He wears royal robes. He, de he delivers wonderful speeches and orations. And the people are so impressed, they call him God. This man's the dude, isn't he? This is the kind of man who, you know, if he turned up a cornerstone, everyone should turn their heads and go silent and, and hope that he would cast his eyes on you and, and give you his patronage. He's a man of power and of influence. And I've already said he, he uses this power and influence against the church. He kills James. He arrests Peter. He's seeking to please the Jews, not the Christians. At first glance, Herod appears powerful. And in a sense, he is. Let's just stop there a minute. The enemies of Christ can and will, if they are able, hurt God's people. Many Christians in our world today are experiencing severe persecution. Did you know Open Doors, a UK-based charity that seeks to help the evangelical persecuted church, they said, and this is a very, very difficult number to actually uh, come down on, they said in 2022, almost 6,000 Christians were killed across the world for the faith. Did you know 5,100 of them were in Nigeria? In 2022, 5,100 Christians died, lost their life, became martyrs for Christ in that great and wonderful and glorious land of Nigeria. Our hearts should break for our brothers and sisters in that land and across this world. Persecution can be brutal and fatal. I'm not in any way trying to, to minimize the power and, and the threat that our enemies have. And yet, we've got to look a little bit deeper, haven't we? Because Luke doesn't want us to end there. Actually, this power of Herod's is illusory. It's temporary. It's apparent. What actually happens? Peter escapes from prison. Herod has to kill the guards instead of Peter. And just at the peak of his powers at the acme of his authority as he delivers this speech and as he's, he's robed in royal robes and as the people are praising him as deity, what happens? He's struck down and he dies. You see what's happening here? In reality, although he appears to have power, there is a critique going on in this passage. Luke is encouraging us to critique this power, to go, yes, it can hurt us, but in reality, it's an illusory power. It's an apparent power. It's not real power. True power lies elsewhere. I remember as a young child growing up, uh, watching the news, my father We'd always watch the news on the television. There was the BBC 9 o'clock news and the BBC 10 o'clock news, and he'd watch them both. I don't know why they were exactly the same. There we go. I'd sit there with him. It was my time with my dad. And uh, I remember watching the rise of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And often he would come on our television screens, and he would be there at some public event, and there would be thousands of Iraqis around him, applauding him and waving flags and, and, and singing his praises. But when the fall came, it came very quickly. 
And it turns out, afterwards, that they used to pay or bully Iraqis. They would say, you better turn out, and you better wave the flags, and you better look happy, and you better be dressed in your best, and you better praise Saddam Hussein or else. It appeared like he was the man. But like Herod here, almost overnight, in an instance, that power proved to be illusory. Let me ask you, who are you putting your trust in? Who are you putting your trust in? Let me read a few verses from Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. What do we read? Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Who are you putting your trust in? Or let me put it another way. Who are you putting your fear in? You may not be trusting the powers that be, but you may be fearing the powers that be. And I understand that. So do I. But this text is telling us you do not need to fear them. Their power is illusory. Let me put it like this. Let me ask you a question. As you came to church this morning, how many of you passed, and I passed a number of different churches, a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Seventh-day Adventist church, wonderfully several Presbyterian churches. Did you, how many of you, shout out if you'd like to, I don't mind, I can deal with it. How many of you passed the church worshipping Caesar? Any, any takers? Is there a, is there a Caesar worshipping church in Nashville and Franklin? No. 2,000 years ago, everyone worshipped Caesar. He was, the, he was the guy to fall down before. He was the one who was called a god. He was believed to be deity. There's not one church or follower or disciple of Caesar now, is there? But there are hundreds of millions of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of Herod is illusory. Just before I move to my second point, just notice one other detail which is fascinating. Did you notice that Luke records for us in verses 3 and 4 that it was the feast of unleavened bread, that it was Passover? Now, why does he do that? Luke, Luke never wastes words. He's wanting us to connect this event to another feast of unleavened bread, to another Passover, to another Herod who interrogated someone else. And who was it? It was Jesus Christ. We're supposed to make the link. Our synapses are supposed to fire and connect what's happening in Acts 12. Wait a minute, this has happened before. It looks like the church is following in the footsteps of her Savior. What happened to Jesus is now being replicated in the life of his people. What Christ suffered and endured and triumphed over, the church will as well. In our suffering, in our weakness, what's God doing? He's making us like Jesus. He's making us like Jesus. The illusion of Herod's power. Do you notice, secondly, the importance of the church's prayer. Now, what does the church do? Let's, let's cast our attention now. We've looked at Herod. What does the church do in this chapter? Almost, not quite, but almost nothing. Almost nothing. What do they do? They pray. 
twice, we are told, in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God to the church. And verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is all the church does. In the face of this onslaught, what are the weapons of the church's warfare? They pray. This is their response. They get on their knees. And it's worth noting a few things about this, isn't it? And so obviously, but so importantly, who were they praying to? They're not praying to Mary. They're not praying to the saints or for the saints. They're not praying to, praying to inanimate objects as other religions do. We read in verse 5, prayer was made to God. There's a hint there where true power lies. Did you know what prayer is? Prayer is an audience with the living God. It's an audience with the living God. You see, I, I, you may be the kind of people that do this. Wonderful if you are, every blessing. But you know, I'm not the kind of person that will meet prime ministers or presidents or the power brokers of our world. I'm not invited into the White House and asked what my thoughts and counsels are on, on anything. My guess is most of you aren't either. But we are invited into the presence of the living God where true power lies. That's why they pray. They're not praying out of desperation, although they may have felt desperate. They're praying because they know there is only one place they can go for help, and it is in God Almighty. And you notice as well, they're praying together. I love this about the early church. There's a time to pray on our own, absolutely. There's a time to pray as families, absolutely. But they pray together. The church gathered to pray, to cry out to our living God. You know, I've been a Christian for, since I was the age of 16, and I'm 44 now, and I'm not great at math, so I'm not going to tell you how long I've been a Christian. You, do, you work it out. I'm a very slow learner. But I've begun to realize recently that I pray my best when I'm praying with other Christians. Did you know that? Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't pray on your own. I'm not saying don't pray as wives and husbands and as families. Of course we should do that. But I pray my best with others. When they're leading in prayer, when I'm praying, I'm the most engaged. And this is what they're doing here. They're, they get together to pray. And notice we're told their prayers were earnest. Earnest prayer, verse 5. This is not a mere formality. They're imploring and beseeching God. They're prioritizing prayer as well. Do you notice that? It's, it's clearly nighttime. Peter gets freed at night. And what does he find the church doing? Together at two in the morning, four in the morning, praying. There's a great book on prayer by one of the Puritans, John Bunyan. He's known for Pilgrim's Progress, I know. I think it's the second uh, best-selling book in the world, the Bible being the best. Pilgrim's Progress. But he, he wrote other books. And he wrote this little book. It's just entitled, inventively, Prayer. You can buy it. It's published by the Banner of Truth. Wonderful little book. And in it, on one of the first pages, he says this, There is much we can do after we have prayed, but there is nothing for us to do until we have prayed. There's much for us to do after we prayed, but there's nothing for us to do until we have prayed. They are prioritizing 
prayer. Where do you go? Where do you go when the going gets tough? Who have you got to call upon? Who can you reach out to? Oh, you need to reach out to your brothers and sisters. You need to reach out to the church. But we can reach out to our God. We can come to him in prayer. We can lay our anxieties and troubles before him. And he loves to hear us. Before I move to my third point, let me ask you, when was Jesus' darkest hour? Well, theologians debate, actually. There were two contenders. One was Gethsemane, and the other was the cross. You can chat about that over coffee, which one was his darkest hour. But what's he doing at both? What's he doing as the, 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 the enemies of the evil one encircle him? As he is being pronounced the sinful one in our place, as it were, God is unleashing our hell upon him so we can inherit his heaven. What's he doing? He prays. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see, see what is happening here? We're being told again. Not, not just the timing of this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but in the activity of the church. You see, when, when Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, what were the disciples doing? Snoring. But what are they doing now? They're praying. They've learned. They're growing in, in Christ-likeness. They're becoming more and more like Jesus. This is what, what our weakness does. We feel weakness, don't we? I feel weakness. We, we like to have the bravado, the alpha male bravado. I don't know if there's such a thing as alpha female, but work with me on it. You know, we, we like to put on the show. And, and we're the ones that give. We don't need to receive. We're the ones that are strong. We're not weak. We've got to recalibrate our minds and our Christian lives. When we're weak, actually it's at that point that our God can change us and transform us. When we're willing to get on our knees and say, Lord, my God, I've got nothing to bring to you. It's at that point he can use you. He can make you more like Jesus Christ. We've seen the illusion of Herod's power and the importance of the church's prayer. Would you notice thirdly and finally, the immutability of God's purpose. The immutability of God's purpose. Now, you might be sitting there going, what on earth is immutability? That sounds like a disease that I need to go to my doctors for. What's wrong with you? Well, I think I've, got, I think I've called immutability. Can, you, can I have some pills for that? No, 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 it's not. Immutability is a very important theological word. We use it to describe God. It talks about, it means God's unchangeableness. If you are immutable, you do not change. Nothing can affect you from outside. Your purpose will come to pass. It's, it's another way of describing God's absolute sovereignty. That he does whatever he pleases. And nothing, nothing, not even the Herods of our world, or the Vladimir Putins of our world, or the Saddam Husseins of our world, can stop him. And this is what we see in this chapter. Yes, we see the illusion of Herod's power and the importance of the church's prayer. But above all, we see the immutability, the sovereignty of God's purpose. Did you see this in the, the details of Peter's deliverance from prison? Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night. Did you know? And this is just, just so lovely. And yet it will blow your mind away. God's timing is exquisitely perfect. 
God's timing is exquisitely perfect. He, he, he's, he's like Gandalf. He's never late. He's never late. He always arrives. He always works. He always shows his power just at the precise moment. I mean, think about it from Peter's point of view. He's been in prison. He's seen James die. Couldn't you come a little bit earlier? How how about dusk? Dusk! You know, just before my evening meal, if he had one. No, no, no. God comes just at the right moment. Just before Herod is going to bring him out and very probably execute him. And what, what happens? An angel comes, a messenger of God. How did this angel get into the, into the prison cell? Where does this light come from? I don't know. But this is God coming through his messenger to save. What happens to the chains? He's chained to two soldiers. They just fall off. Verse 10, the iron gate opens of its own accord. And using language from, uh, from Moses in Exodus 18, Peter says, the Lord has rescued me. In fact, I don't have time to go into this, but actually what's happening here is an exodus. It's actually a microcosm of the crossing of the Red Sea. What, what, why, does the, why is there a light? Why does he pass through unseen and unheard? Why, why does the gate open? It's exodus. It's, it's Peter's own personal exodus as God comes to save him. And he uses the language of Moses as Moses looks back on the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 18 to say, the Lord rescued me. Do you see what we're being told in the details here? God is powerful to save. Nothing gets in his way. Chains can't get in his way. Soldiers can't get in his way. Locked gates and iron gates can't get in his way. He does whatever he wants. And did you notice as well, he does it despite and through the weakness of the church. Now, there's something comical about these verses, actually. I don't know if you know this. There are moments when we read our Bibles that should be laugh-out-loud moments. I'm being serious now. Like, seriously, the Bible is not this flat piece of literature. We should read parts of the Bible, and and, and there should be, in a sense, reverent but uproarious laughter. I can give you a couple of instances. Elijah on Mount Carmel. One one man against 400 servants of Baal. Who's going to, they're calling on their gods so that the fire will come down from heaven to to light the altar and the sacrifice. And there they are, the Baal, they're stripping themselves naked, these Baal uh, prophets, and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out. They'll be doing it all day long. And what does Elijah say? And actually in the Hebrew, it's it's, it's so um, visceral, I can't repeat it to you. It's it's not very nice. But I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it. He says, you need to speak up louder. Your God's in the restroom. And he's taken up with other business. He's mocking them. It's, it's funny. There's 400 of you cutting yourself and crying out, where's this God of yours? And all he has to do is get on his knees and pray. God shows himself. Jesus is funny on the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, be careful when you see a speck in your brother's eye. Because you might have a log, and it's, it's hilarious. The picture is not of this kind of splinter coming out of your eye. It's this massive log of th- this tree trunk, and you're walking around knocking everything over, and you meet someone, you oh, I've got to tell you, you've got this speck in your eye. You need to deal with that. It's humorous, but this is humorous as well. It's comical, and the comedy actually highlights the weakness of the church. What does the angel have to do? He has to whack Peter on the head to wake him up. Do you notice that? 
He has to give him childlike instructions to get dressed. Do you know, to any, anyone who's a parent or a grandparent or an uncle and auntie, you, you, you'll have experienced this. You're late for church, okay, and you've got little Jimmy or little Jane, and it's, come on, all right, put, put your trousers on. No, 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 that's your head. Uh, button your shirt up. No, no, that's completely the wrong way round. Uh, do your lace, I'll do it for you. Okay, childlike instruction. That's what he has to give him. Peter, put your cloak on. Peter, put your hat on. Peter, it, it's funny. He can't even dress himself. And then what happens when he gets released and he finds the church at prayer? He knocks on the door. They send Rhoda. Don't you love the fact we're told it's Rhoda? See, God knows every single one of his children by name. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about this little servant girl, this insignificant little girl. All she did was answer the door, but God is saying, she's not insignificant to me. I know her name, and he knows your name. But you know what, you know what, you know what happens? They, what have they been praying for? That Peter be released. Rhoda forgets to open the door. Let me in, it's Peter. Oh, I'll go and tell everyone. And then when she goes to tell everyone, they go, look, be quiet. We're, we're praying here for Peter to get released. Stop disturbing us. And she's like, he's there at the... No, see, it's his angel. They don't even believe. They don't even believe the prayers they prayed. It's quite like me, actually. Do you believe the prayers you pray? I often don't. But God still answers them. So often. The church here is being shown to be weak. The church here is shown to be pretty frail and fragile, even pathetic. And yet, what does God do? He saves, he works, he displays his power. He uses the weak things of this world. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. He takes this frail and fragile, this pathetic church, and he demonstrates his supreme power. I don't know if you've heard of Lewis Hamilton. Anyone heard of Lewis Hamilton? He's a Formula One driver. He's kind of like the best of Britain. He's kind of like what Tiger Woods was to golf. Lewis Hamilton is to Formula One, to Formula One driving. Can you imagine if Lewis Hamilton turned up at the British Grand Prix, Formula One Grand Prix at Silverstone, and instead of turning up in an F1 300 million pound car with a team of 200 engineers and technicians behind him, he turned up in my Volkswagen Sharon, two-liter diesel people carrier, naught to 60 in 24 hours. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine if he turned up to race? Can you imagine the mockery he would have from the other race drivers and the commentators and the television crews? What are you doing? That's pathetic. Imagine if he won. Imagine if he lapped them all. Imagine if he crossed the line and the checkered flag. Imagine what they'd then say about Lewis Hamilton. They'd go, he is the best Formula One driver that has ever, ever driven. He won the race in Andy Young's VW Chevron 2-liter diesel, north to 16, 24 hours. That's what God is doing here. He's taking, by the way, I'm calling you my VW Sharon. You're in the picture, okay? North to 60 and 20. This is what the church is. This is what we are. We're a banged up, beaten up car. But God still wins the race. He uses us through us. He displays his glory. 
what was happening on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely as Jesus Christ hung there, battered, bruised, and bloodied, as his life was ebbing away, surely the onlookers would have thought, how pathetic, how weak, how utterly useless. And little did they know that through that act of eternal humility and condescension, through that act of weakness, God was displaying his power to save. See what's happening in the church. They're being formed into, cruciformed into the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the very end, what happens, we read the word of God increased and multiplied. God's word is effective. Uh, he can speak, Herod can give this wonderful speech, but it falls dead. It's God's word that is heard and multiplied. His power is shown. We've seen the illusion of Herod's power, the importance of the church's prayer, and the immutability of God's purpose. Let me round things up and conclude. The church is called to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? It is the most wonderful thing in the world to be a Christian. Let me assure you. You ask any Christian in here. You ask any Christian. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more precious than being a Christian, more blessed, more wonderful. But at the same time, we're called to die. We're called to take up our cross and to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what our God will do. He will risk us and our weakness being exposed so that his power and purpose can be fulfilled and so that he can be glorified. In other words, this is a death and a resurrection. The church dies in this chapter. But the church rises to a new life in this chapter, mimicking and imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. We should joyfully, and often with tears in our eyes and an ache in our hearts, and with brothers and sisters' arms around our shoulders, we should go forward with our cross, knowing that in our weakness and fragility and frailness, we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. But finally... Jesus wins. That's actually the message of the whole Bible. You can, you can sum up the whole Bible in two words. You know that? Especially, you can sum up Revelation. You know that book of Revelation that most Christians fear? Revelation's easy to understand on one level. It's simply this. Jesus wins. That's it. Our God reigns. And Jesus Wins despite persecution, despite imprisonment, despite death, the church grows. It is, not just, it is through the weakness of the church. It is through our fragility that God proves his strength. You know, uh, John Wesley's diary carries on. I stopped at a certain point. Let me read you two more entries in his diary. Remember all the Sundays of rejection and opposition and rejection and opposition June the 2nd in the morning, preached out at the edge of town. I was kicked off the highway. June the 2nd, Sunday evening, I preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear me. Failure, 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 weakness, fragility, failure, opposition, failure, failure, weakness, fragility, and God uses him. 10,000 people come out to hear me. 
Whose side are you on? See, Jesus wins. There's only one side to be on. Whose side are you on? And if you're on Jesus' side, praise God because he is so great. He is so powerful that he will use you in your weakness. Let's pray together. We bow before you, O God, because you are great beyond our imagining. The God who sits on, in, above the circle of the earth, who causes kingdoms to rise and nations to fall. The, the nations are as, as a drop in the bucket to you. And yet, you know the hairs on our head. You know the name of every single one of, of your servants, even though they may appear insignificant. And it is in our weakness that you show your strength and power. May you be praised. And please use us, Lord. Please use us. Use us in our weakness that you may be glorified and the, the gospel may advance and sinners may be saved and saints may be sanctified and Christ's kingdom may come. And all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.